welcome again to Riverway Church. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to this series as we continued called Finding Grace. And uh, we want to say a special welcome to those of you watching in our parent viewing room. Uh, it's a great option for those of you with babies who might get disruptive uh, during the message. You can watch the whole service live from our parent viewing room. Just pass the donuts and the coffee. Well, last week we kicked off this series called Finding Grace. And if I were to ask you, what does the term the grace of God, what does that mean to you? What does it sound like? And does it have strings attached when you think of that term? Last week we described God's grace as wild, untamable, and unrelenting towards us. Truth is, is that there's no safe, balanced version of grace. And for those that might be in the religious life, maybe a little longer than others, even us saying that there's no safe, balanced version of grace tends to make religious folk a little bit nervous. But grace is. It's shocking. Grace is radical. It's counterintuitive to everything that we know. And this is your first fill-in right inside of your bulletin. should be some message notes. You can grab those out and follow along and fill in the blanks. But we want to define grace this way, that grace is the free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully on our mind and heart to change our life. It's the free, unmerited favor of God. And I, I want to kind of illustrate it uh, this way. Um, how many of you remember 1991? Anyone remember 1991? It was actually a great year uh, if you lived in Minnesota because the Twins won the World Series in 91. <laughs> And that was our last taste of glory uh, since then. So we've been in a little bit of a drought. But in 1991, the Summer Olympics were being held in Tokyo. And uh, you might remember a jumper by the name of Carl Lewis. Anybody ever remember Carl Lewis? And uh, he actually, on this date in 1991, set a world record for the longest jump, right? If you can imagine this, the longest jump. Now, Nick, I need your help real quick, if you don't mind coming over here and helping me. And we're going to pretend just for a moment that this is the ending point of his jump, okay? And then I'm going to create the starting point, all right? And so I've got mine over here, and we've got this little tape measure, so I'm going to have you grab a hold of that, and I'm going to have you stand right there, because that is where Carl Lewis ended his jump. So I want you to picture this in your mind, a human being jumping this distance, okay? And so I just want to see where we're at here, okay? And uh, okay, good. We're doing good here. Uh, okay... Nope, that's not it. Okay, we're going to keep going here. Um, that, nope, that's only 21 feet. Hold on. Let's keep going here. This, nope, we're going to keep going here. We're going to keep going to 29 feet, one inch. If you can imagine that, right? 29 feet, one inch, Carl Lewis jumped. And if you don't believe me, let's watch it real quick. Here it is. Had to have seen that jump. He was sitting at the runway watching Powell's every move. Is this guy amazing? 30 years old. And he just set the world record in 100 meters. Another great jump for Lewis. He's also drifting off to the right of the pit. I haven't seen that either. Imagine this jump, right? A human being jumped this far, starting point to ending point. I know for many of us, we can't even fathom what that would be like. In this moment, Carl Lewis breaks the world record, right? He's going crazy. People are going crazy. 
Until only moments after this jump, there's a man by the name of Mike Powell. And this is his last opportunity to beat Carl Lewis's record. And so here it is. Let's watch this jump. Back in Tokyo for more men's long jump. On his last attempt, Carl Lewis jumped in excess of the current world record held for the past 22 and a half years by Bob Beeman. However, it was wind-aided, exceeding the allowable limit by nine-tenths of a meter per second, or roughly two miles per hour. This is Mike Powell, fifth-round jump. He's starting to run out of time. In the fourth round, he had a slight foul right around 28 feet, nine inches. Powell's got to get on his horse right here. Oh, big jump for Powell! That was huge! No red flag like in the last round. So Mike Powell goes on to beat Carl Lewis, and he actually jumped 29 feet. You're holding it tight there. 29 feet, 4 inches is what Mike Powell jumped. Thanks, Nick. You can have a seat. I want you to think just for a moment about this jump, that if you had to line up and jump this jump this morning. I mean, could you imagine starting at one? And even if you got the best running start that you ever wanted, how far would you land between here and there? Right? For some of you, it's quite depressing. You don't even want to think about it, right? You're like, I'd probably trip over the starting line and land face first in the dirt, right? Right? There has only been, get this, one person on planet Earth that has ever jumped this far. One person in the history of mankind that has ever jumped this far. Now, if this down here represented God's standard for forgiveness in your life, if you were starting down there and God said, in order for you to be forgiven, in order for you to get heaven, in order for you to, be, to satisfy every law that I've put out in front of you, you have to make it to right here. How would you do it? If you had to run and jump from that point down there, and in order to make it, you had to land here, what would you do? Some of us would think, well, I would jump as far as I could and then just, you know, quietly tiptoe my way, you know, hoping not to leave marks in the sand, and I I would just kind of crawl my way to the finish. Because the truth is, there's not a one of us that could make that jump. Not one of us. And if this is God's standard, how would you measure up? And let's say you landed here or you landed here. Maybe you even landed all the way here. And you thought to yourself, well, God, this has to be good enough. Because look at how far I jumped. Look at how good I've done with my life. Look at the right choices I've made. And and look at that I haven't done too many more bad. I've been more of a good person than I've been a bad person. God, look at how far I've arrived. And God would still say, yeah, but you're still short. You're still short of what I require. And suddenly it becomes very depressing. For every single one of us, when we realize that we could never measure up to what God would require of us. And when we think of his requirements, we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of all the things that we should do right. And the Pharisees, who were the religious rulers of this time in the New Testament, they were the ones who were not only living by the law, but making sure everyone else was living by the law. And they believed that the law was the most important thing. And they believed that if you followed the law close enough that you could get to God's requirement. That you could earn your way to heaven. You could earn your way to forgiveness. 
And suddenly Jesus shows up on the scene. And he begins to wreck their entire ideology. And the Pharisees didn't like it very much. And so they began to test Jesus on issues of the law. Trying to trap him so that they could do away with him. They wanted to prove that you could only be saved by keeping the law. By doing all of the right things. And so we pick up this passage in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and it says this. On one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath said there was no work that could be done, none whatsoever. And even picking the heads of the grain was considered work. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, why would your disciples, the guys that follow you, why would they be doing this? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. Now, you may not know what consecrated bread means, but it sounds important, doesn't it, right? Consecrated bread, they ate it, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. And what's interesting is that as you thumb through the the New Testament, and you read through the Gospels, and you read the miracles, and I don't have an exact percentage, but you will find that over easily over half of all the miracles that Jesus ever did He did on the Sabbath as a way of just kind of, I think, proving his point to the Pharisees, the religious people who thought they had it all figured out. And this was incredibly offensive to them because Jesus wasn't keeping with the law. And the law was their operating system. The system the Pharisees kept were all conditional in nature. And this is what they thought. They said, do what's right and God will be impressed by you and he will accept you. If you don't do what's right, you will not receive God's approval. In other words, you'll never make it to God's requirement. You've got to jump through the right hoops. You've got to make the distance. Somehow you've got to do it. And if and only then will God accept you. And truth be told, it kind of sounds like a lot of our systems, doesn't it? Or how we think that God views us. Your next fill-in, there are many people that think all God wants to do is count our sins against us. And yet the reality is instead he sent Christ into our broken lives so that we could be reconciled to him. Many of us think that God's up in heaven with a tally sheet going, oh, I saw that, Johnny. Oh, I saw that, Sarah. Oh, I've got, you know, we think he's kind of like Santa Claus, you know, the nighty and nice list and the naughty list and where do you land and I hope I'm a better person than I am bad and I hope I'm doing more good that he raises my bad. We think that God operates this way, but rather instead he sent Christ into our broken lives so that we could be reconciled back to God. You see, God's motive isn't to ever punish you or make a case against you, but this is the message that the Pharisees were preaching. This was the end game for the Pharisees, to follow the rules, that everything depends on how well you do that. And of course, everyone looked up to them and did their very best. 
Yet the truth is, your next feeling, that no one can be saved by the law. No one can be saved by doing more good than bad. No one can be saved by jumping half the distance. No one can be saved by crossing enough T's and dotting enough I's. No one. But yet the law is necessary and needed in our life. Why? Because the law is what makes us aware that we are sinners. That's what the law's purpose is is to make us aware that we're sinners. You see, without the law, we would have never known that lying was wrong. Without the law, we would have never known that stealing is wrong. Without the law, we would have never known that adultery is wrong. And then the sinner, who recognizes it because of the law, who is dead because of sin, can be set free from the law by choosing life in Christ. And now this amazing grace that we don't deserve when suddenly we could never clear the distance, God says, my grace will fill in the gap for you. And this amazing grace gives us the desire now to turn away from the very sin that once kept us dead. See, grace is not synonymous with anything goes. That's not what grace is for. It's not just, hey, you know what? God will forgive me so I can sin and do whatever I want. No, 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 because it's a matter of the heart. God sees your heart, not your, I mean, way bigger than your actions, right? He sees our hearts. Grace doesn't mean anything goes. On the contrary, grace is there so that we could be set free from sin. But the problem is that we think this kind of freedom only comes from trying to measure up to the law by jumping the clearance, by following all the rules. And if you haven't noticed lately, we fail miserably at that. Maybe it's just me. But I can't make this jump, no matter how hard I try. Yet for some of us, your next villain, we think grace is the enemy of obedience. We think, well, if we just give people grace, then they won't obey. If we talk too much about how God's grace is wild and it will mess up your hair and overflow the banks and we can't understand it, and it's totally unconditional and one-way love, we have this fear as religious people that, oh, well, suddenly, then people will go do whatever they want and they won't obey anything because of the grace of God. But yet it's the opposite. Really, legalism is. It's what the Pharisees were doing, saying, listen, if you can't jump to here, you're not going to measure up, so you better fake it while you're making it. Right? It pushes you down. That's what legalism does. That says you're not good enough, and you can't make it, and you're not jumping high enough, whatever it might be. You and I fall way short of trying to keep up with what's required of the law. So you know what we do? Because we can only jump this far, we end up staying right here in our sin. And we think, well, there's no hope anyway, so I might as well just keep sinning. I might as well just keep living in this misery and in this death that I feel in my heart and in my soul. I might as well just stay here because I can never measure up anyway. I'm not good enough. And, and, and Ryan, I've tried. I mean, I, I even went back further to try to run and jump. And, and there's been times, I, I, first I was like only this far, and now I've gotten this far, but I can never seem to get past this point. I don't know how I'm ever going to get there. And so sin just keeps us stuck right in place. We feel condemned and pushed down, and it gives us no hope to live any differently. Because the Pharisee would say that God is only happy with you if you can keep all the rules. God is only happy with you if you can somehow 
jump that far. But grace, on the other hand, inspires us to obey God more. Knowing that his love for us never changes no matter what we choose. And this is so hard for many of us to get our minds around. The fact that we only jump to here and there's this big gap. And God says, that's okay, that's why I sent Jesus Christ to fill in this gap for you. And it's called grace. No, 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 I know you don't deserve it. Because remember our working definition, it's the free unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it. But he gladly and willingly gives it. And God says, guess what? If you trip and fall right here, and you have two choices in your hand, no matter what you choose, while there will be earthly consequences, I want you to know that if you come back to me, that I will always forgive you, and I will always love you, and that will never change. Suddenly, with this kind of awareness of a God that could love us that much, it causes something to change in our hearts that says, I don't want to live in that sin anymore, and I don't want to be dead to that anymore. I want this life that Christ is talking about. God would say that the law is there to remind us again and again how much we need him, how much we need his forgiveness. You see your next fill, and when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, it was him pointing to the goal of God's law, which was restoration. You see, Jesus wasn't just trying to foo-foo the law. He wasn't saying that the law didn't matter. He was saying that wasn't the point of the law. The point of the law was to draw men back to God. That's why we need the law to know that we're sinners and we can't make it without him. We can't do it on our own. Jesus was saying the law exists to serve the people, not the other way around. That people always come first with God. People always come first with God. Now there's this amazing passage in Romans 3 and it gets a little wordy. And so I just want you to hang with me. Everyone say hang in there. Everyone say, hang in there. All right, so we're going to do this together. Are you ready? It says this, Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, he just said, no matter how you try to work the law. In other words, if you were to keep all the law, you wouldn't be justified by that. For by the law is the knowledge of, what's that word? Right, so that's why the law exists. It's for the knowledge of sin. But now, everyone say, but now. I love when it says, but now. That's, that's always encouraging to me, right? But now, the righteousness of God, which just means right standing, the right standing of God, apart from the law, is revealed. God is saying, I'm separating these two things. You have the law and my righteousness. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, in other words, all the Old Testament is watching, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who, what's that word? Believe. In other words, God's saying, hey, no respecters of persons here. No respecters of persons. For all who will believe, I'll separate the law from righteousness and you'll be in right standing with God because it's not the law anyway that makes you saved. It's not the law that gives you new life. It's right standing with God. So then he goes on in the next verse to help level the playing field. And he says this, for there is no difference, speaking of all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, he's saying every single one of us, doesn't matter how hard we try to jump from there, we always fall short of the glory or the expectation or the standard that God has for us. Now, growing up in my world, I always thought there was a period after this verse. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, period, right? I mean, that brings a lot of hope to your life, doesn't it? <laughs> Think, oh, great, we're terrible people. <laughs> I'm a miserable, miserable man, right? I, I always thought that there was a period there. And, and the Bible didn't say comma, I said comma in the slide, just so we'd all know there's a comma there, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all don't measure up, comma, being justified freely by his, what's that word? Grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier. Get this. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation, that's a big word. I even had to look it up, right? It means this. The appeasement of divine wrath by a sacrificial offering. That's what this word means. Because our sin separates us from God, and God hates sin. Because he's holy, he can't have any sin in his sight. And so suddenly this wrath is now incurred on us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what he did? He took all of that wrath towards our sin, past, present, future, took all of that wrath and put it on the person of Jesus Christ. And when he died, he justified every single person. He took our place, and your next fill-in says this, that if Christ did not bear the wrath of God that was stored up, that we deserved, it would still be stored up for us. Jesus was that sacrifice for us. If Christ did not bear the wrath of God that we deserved, it would still be stored up for us. But Jesus was that sacrifice for us. God was saying any past sins, Old Testament up until now, all have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he was sent, God remained just. How did he remain just? Because he punished sin. You see, all sin has to be punished. And while we know that there are spiritual consequences and physical consequences for our sin here on earth, is there not? Right? That just because God forgives us doesn't mean that we don't still have earthly consequences for our sin even though his grace covers us, even though he helps fill in the gap. So he was just in that he took care of the consequence for sin and yet at the same time justified us by declaring us right before God. He was just and the justifier all at the same time. Now, if you've never sinned in your life or made any mistakes, this is like, oh, big deal, right? This is not that cool. But if you have ever for a moment sensed the weight of your own sin and how much you've messed up and how many times you've fallen short on your jump in life, if you've ever sensed that in your life, this suddenly becomes the good news that we've all been waiting for. This becomes life-changing that there is a God in heaven who wants to be put back together with you. Now, 
I mean, think about this for a moment. There are some people here on earth that don't even want to be put back together with you. That's a sobering thought, right? Yet in spite of everything you've done, there is a God in heaven who established the law so that that law, would we would recognize that we're sinners and we fall way short and we desperately need him. He established the law so that there could be reconciling, so that God the Father could be in relationship with us. And we find grace when we're in Christ Jesus because he became our sin. Now here's the next verse, and this is crazy. He asked the question, where is boasting then? In other words, who's bragging now that they've received this grace? Is it because of the law? Of course not. Of works? Like you jumping through all the hoops and doing enough good things? No way. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by, what's that word? By faith apart from the deeds of the law. In other words, God just said this. He said, while this is what I have required of you, that you measure up to this standard, I know that you can't. And I don't want to tie you up with having to jump through hoops and feeling condemned and pressured and shamed and all those things because you'll never measure up. Instead, I'm going to send Jesus Christ to be your sacrifice and my sacrifice. He's going to be the one that will fill in the gap for you. What an amazing thought. We can't boast because we've been a good person or we've done more good than bad, but we've been justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It means we're justified. We're in right standing with God apart from any hoops of any kind. And while we may know this, it has a hard time going from our head to our hearts. For some reason, we just can't let this go. And so I want to ask you the question, why are we so attracted to keeping the law? This is your next feeling. Why are we so attracted to keeping the law? This to-do list of Christianity, God, if you can just tell me what to do, then I'll check it off one by one, and then I'll know that I've certainly arrived. Here's why. Because the one thing we need is righteousness or right standing with God. And we know that deep down, every single one of us know that deep down something's not right. And something has to be fixed. And we spend our lives trying to secure this in our own life. And God's answer is grace. Grace. Nothing more and nothing less. One-way love, grace. But grace seems too simplistic and too good to be true, doesn't it? We don't don't like that idea that there could really be no effort on our part involved. But here's the truth, your next feeling, that we have a hard time with law because it tells us what to do. We don't like being told what to do, but we have a harder time with grace because it tells us there's nothing we can do. We have a harder time with grace because it tells us there's nothing we can do. Why do we have a hard time with that? Because our hearts are prone to independence. We want to do it our own. We we want to bring comfort and peace to ourselves. I can protect myself. I can rescue myself. Your next fill-in, the law is appealing because it keeps rescue within our own grasp. But Jesus wants us to trust him when he says it is finished. It's finished. 
Everything I did for you on the cross finished everything. Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. I don't know about you, but I feel blessed that there's a God in heaven that was willing to forgive all of my sin. And every time I fell short on this jump, he was there to pick me back up and say, it's okay, my grace is enough to get you to the finish line. My grace is enough. The lead singer of U2, Bono, was interviewed on his own religious beliefs. And in this interview, he said something very interesting uh, regarding the grace of God. And the interviewer said this, I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? Bono said, yes, I think that's normal. It's, my, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company. A real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. The interviewer says, I haven't heard you talk about that. Bono says, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma and into one of grace. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, or in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet comes along this idea called grace. To upend all of that, as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies region and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news, news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer says, I'd be interested to hear about that. Bono says, that's between me and God. But I would be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep trouble. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. What a statement. I'm holding out for grace. You see, keeping the law can't save you. Even the disciples couldn't get their minds around this. Check out this last verse, John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, God, come on. Jesus, tell us what we have to do to earn it. Tell us what we have to do to arrive at this final destination point. Give us a checklist of some point. And Jesus replies, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. And he's about to tell them, and you can even see the disciples like, finally, yes, okay, he's gonna give us the answer right here, everything we need to do, the right hoops to jump through, the right checklist to cross off to get to this point. And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. <laughs> the disciples are like, Jesus, listen, we need you to think harder about this, all right, because it can't be that simple. We'll come back in a day or so. You think about this and give us like a list. 
Like, what can we do to earn this? And Jesus said, no, no, no. I want you to believe in me. I want you to put all your trust and all your faith in me. And if you will do that, it will be enough. Your next feeling, you see, God sets his grace on us, not because we are worthy of it, but simply because God takes delight in doing so. He loves us, and he loves you. He takes delight in doing so. Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. In other words, because you weren't better than other people. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. That's why he set his affection on you. In your last feeling, we do not live God's way in order to become his children, but out of gratitude that we already are God's children. What an amazing thought. That we don't live apart from sin to earn our way to God. We live apart from sin out of the freedom we have found in grace. Because his grace is so rich towards us that we want to run from sin. And the truth is, is that there's no one that is so good that they don't need the grace of God. And in the same way, there is no one so bad that they can't receive the grace of God. There's no one so good and no one so bad because you and I cannot make this jump no matter how hard we tried. And yet as we jump, grace is the wind behind our backs that carry us the full distance to his standard. And now God looks at us and says, you're free. You're in right standing with me. Not because of you, because of Jesus Christ willing to take all of that wrath and sin upon him so that he might be the sacrifice for our sin. Amazing thought. Would you mind closing your eyes all over this room as we get ready to pray? And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're here this morning and you've had such a hard time with this concept of grace. To realize there's a God in heaven who desires nothing more than to be in relationship with you. And him giving you the law wasn't to punish you and it wasn't to shame you. It was to simply make you aware that you and I need him in a big way. Can I tell you that no matter where you're at today, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, he's seen it all. And his grace and his love towards you has not diminished one ounce. So in just a moment, we want to take 30 seconds to pray and talk to God. We believe here at Riverway Church that we can talk to God and he can talk to us. And it won't be an audible voice, but he can speak right to your heart. And maybe in your 30 seconds right here, you would simply say, God, I need your grace. And I receive it. I believe that you are the son of God, that you did die for me. That you rose again. And today I want to walk in this kind of new life. I want to be set free from sin and death and all those things and I want to feel the full weight of your grace. 
Maybe there's others of us that have lost just the gratitude and the awesomeness that no matter how long that we've known God every single morning, his mercy and grace are brand new for us. What an amazing thought. So 30 seconds just between you and God. Let's do that right now. everything else is what we want. So give us the courage and the strength to do it. I pray for anybody in this room who has lived under condemnation and shame and guilt and never felt like they were good enough to be received by you. In this moment, would you set their heart free to know that you are wild for them? Would you wrap your arms of love around them? For those that prayed that prayer to make you the leader of their life and forgiveness of sin, may they sense a new breath, a new life, a new beginning. We thank you that you offer it to us every single day. So help us now to turn from sin from the things that would cause separation between us. God, we want to live in this place of humility and brokenness and repentance of saying, God, we need you every day. Every day we need you. So we lean into you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.